welcome to episode two of this new podcast, Divine Comedians. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and for this show, I'm here with writer, comedian, performer, and poet, Mr. Phil Jupiter. So, hi, Phil. Great to chat with you. Yes, very nice to be here. Cheers. So, you're a bit of a jack of all trades. You're probably best known for your stints on panel shows um, and also your your stand up. Mm. Um, So, how did the comedy thing start for you initially? Um, I started in the the sort of early mid 80s as a performance poet. So, uh, sort of around about 1984, I started gigging kind of drifted into it almost by accident i started out as a cartoonist truth be told and then i met um a poet called attila the stockbroker who was looking for an illustrator for his book of poems and um when we met i had a folder of work that he looked at and in the folder of drawings at the bottom of the drawings was also some poems and uh, i went to meet him to kind of talk about being his illustrator at one of his gigs and he read these poems, and I'm like, oh, oh, don't worry about them, that's, that's, just me. that's just stuff I... And he went, no, 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 let me have a look. And he read these poems, and then he went, you're going to perform these tonight. And I'm like, what? And he put me on stage before his gig at this pub in London. Yeah. And so I, uh, there was never an intention to perform. I mean, I suppose at the, back of, at the back of my head, there must have been some sort of desire to do it someday, but I had no idea how to go about it. And I suppose all that happened really is that Attila forced the issue. So, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even standing up in front of a room of people, I mean, it must just be second nature to you now, but, I mean, initially, I'd say it must have been Well, I really mean, you, you can't really... I'd been going to see a lot of it, and so I understood that it's something that people could do, and the other thing was, was I'd seen a lot of performance poetry by this point. By the time I was gigging, by the time I did this, you know, gig with Attila, I'd seen a lot of performance poets. So, um, and the funny thing is, I'd watch these people, and, and I kind of had this realisation that... So I, went, I remember going to one particular gig where there were 20 of them, 20 poets. And at the end of the gig, as I was on my way, well, they were great, it was amazing. But at the end of the gig, I remember thinking, and this is a terrible thought to, to admit to, but I remember thinking, you know what? I'm fairly sure that I'm better than about half of those people and I don't even do it. I remember that being one of the early... I remember watching and, you know, there were a load of brilliant poets and there were a load of really bad ones as well. And so I suppose that, uh, yeah, it was that. It was that kind of realisation. It can't be that difficult. If that guy can be on stage, why can't I? I I suppose was at the back of my head as well. And so... I remember sort of in when, when John put me on, I just performed these poems very flatly, but they did get a good reaction. And I suppose that's it, really. It's once you've gone on and realised that it's not as scary as you thought. Yeah. I've never really been that bothered by nerves. Never, re- ever. You know, when I went on tour with Billy Bragg, he put me on with him. You know, he'd go, he used to introduce me, which really helped, because then you've got, like, the endorsement of the headliner. And so Billy used to introduce me every night. That was my only precondition of the gig. I said, I will support you, but you have to introduce me. And he was like, yeah, I'll do that. So, um, yeah, so I used to... Uh, I used to kind of, and I'd just do half an hour before before Billy at his gigs, and it was yeah, terrific fun, really good fun. Yeah, I know. I was at the gig on Saturday, yeah, and yeah. I loved your the supporting madness poem that yeah, you did. Just, yeah, that must well, have been a weird that, experience. That was a, well. The thing is, is there's there's a number of gigs that I should never have taken. The ones that I shouldn't have taken have always been gigs with bands. Um, there was one I've suddenly realised there was always there was a situation once where I really dodged a bullet, which was um, a gig. Um, Catatonia wanted me to compare a gig 
at Margham Park in Wales, and I couldn't do it because there was there, there was a date mix-up, and I always thought that that was one of the greatest um, dodged <laughs> kind of horrible gig situations that I could have ever been in, you know, because it, uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway. So, I mean, was comedy always a natural thing for you? Was it something that you kind of, you fell into naturally? Or would you think you think you would have done something else when you left school? Um, well, I was a civil servant for five years after leaving school. So I actually, uh, when I was 18, I went straight into the civil service. And so first gig when I was 21. So I've been a civil servant for three years at that point. And then I was sort of uh, doing the gigs at the weekends and still working in an office so um it became a sort of uh yeah it was weird really because it was a sort of uh like a hobby when i yeah. when i first started performing i was there was no thought that this would become my job this was just like a, an adjunct to my mm. career as a civil servant and it was only when i very first got offered a proper uk tour with billy bragg that i quit my day job he was he was very against me quitting my day job i remember saying I remember, um, I remember phoning home and my mum saying, Billy Bragg phoned you, he wants you to call him. And then the me phoning Billy and him saying, Paul, could you want to come on tour with me? And I'm like, oh, no, fucking hell, yeah, yeah, I will. And I'll quit my day job. He went, do not quit your day job. And I was like, no, no, I've been thinking about it. Don't worry, I've been thinking about doing it for a while and, and this is just like the, the nudge that I needed. And so, yeah, yeah. It, no, it was extraordinary, really, you know. <laughs> so no I had a normal day job before so that that's the thing is I was and I actually think that the better comedians are the ones that have lived a life before they became mm. comedians to be honest with you because I got something to talk about you know Ramesh being a teacher yeah. for all those years you know um uh, Jason Manford worked in sales yeah. you know he worked at call centers and things you know uh, Joe uh, Brand was a psychiatric nurse Jack D was a mate of D at restaurants across London you know was a was a restaurant manager um you know, it's the fact that you found comedy as a as an escape mm. gives it an extra importance to you. And I just and I think now, well, I'm not saying that it was it was necessarily better, but I just think that now comedians that you know came out of college aren't going to be a stand up much more. It's now it's a there's a career path, there's a structure. Yeah. People can do comedy now, in you know, and make a decision to do so. Whereas I think that all my generation found comedy kind of by accident mm. you know i don't think they were ever you know i think you asked you asked me joe brand uh, you know uh, mark thomas jack d when we were 16 what do you want to be the, the, your perfect state your perfect response to that question at 16 should be i don't really know yeah and you know in the meantime i'll get a job and then i'll figure out in my head what i want to do all of my mates went off to university i was the only one out of my group of friends socially that didn't go to university they all went to uni, I got a job. Yeah. So it's weird, I was the only one that had money out of all my mates. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange situation to be in, you know. Yeah, so now you've, you've gone back to education again now, after yeah. after yeah. a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how are you finding it? It must be really weird, you know, even your classmates are like, sort of going, oh my God, Phil Jupiter's is in our well, class. No, no, well, but here's the thing, <laughs> no, here's the thing, is that the thing is, is that most of them kind of don't know who I am. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they're, I... I'm a 57-year-old man. I've got no relevance to young people today. They're all watching YouTube and they're yeah. watching, you know, people playing games. I imagine not very many of them are staying in of an evening watching QI. <laughs> so they kind of, 
um, I think there's a rumour that I did some telly. Is about as far as it goes at college, but they're all cool with me. A few of them, uh, once in a while, one of them will come up and go, "Oh, my dad really likes you." <laughs> <laughs> and it's so it's the thing is, it's if the parents ever show up, that's when that's when people go, "Oh, that's where." I remember certainly when I delivered my portfolio to the art school for uh, assessment. I remember when I brought my portfolio in that uh, that I was older than all the parents bringing their kids in. <laughs> And, and it was the parents bringing their kids in that were nudging each other, going, there's Phil Jupiter's over there. What's he doing there? <laughs> he must be bringing his granddaughter. So, you know, yeah. Or teaching. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so you're also really well-known for your love of, love of music, obviously, and you were talking mm. about touring with, we toured with Madness, yeah. Billy Bragg. I know there was a lot of comedians in the 90s did that. Like, John Shuttleworth was famously yeah. Tour, yeah, yeah. toured with a lot of, uh, yeah, toured yeah. With a lot of bands. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, who's, who's your favourite artist of all time? Do you have a favourite band that you religiously listen to? I, I, well, no, not... I mean, I was very fond... I mean, that we should be talking now, you know, it's, it's kind of opposite and very sad, uh, um... Just uh, last week, we we lost Neil Innes, mm. um, and Neil and the Bonzos really. Um, um, I, the Bonzos I remember from my childhood as being unusual, different, wacky. I I loved the Bonzos as a kid, uh, and then eventually I got to be in the Bonzos as an adult. So, um, and that was purely down to Neil Innes, and you know he was a absolutely a beautiful man and wonderful incredibly talented performer witty bright um talented visual artist as well you know i'm still sort of having trouble kind of dealing with <laughs> him being gone but um yeah. but it's yeah I, I have to say that if there's a kind of sort of someone that i can come back to again and again and and my love of them sort of doesn't change it's the bonzos i can listen to the bonzos now and there's still a sort of a richness to what they did and a kind of unique, odd... The fact that they were straddling, you know, psychedelia using elements of music hall, mm. you know, uh, via Dada art <laughs> and surrealism and the elements they brought to bear. They're, they're, of course, they're precursors to, like, the Boosh and Vic and Bob and all of that kind of... There's a great um, strand of British absurdity... In uh, and I like it, and it's often people that people who um, straddle different um, disciplines. Mm. So you know, Vic and Bob put used to put singles out. You know, they used to make music. Um, uh, the Bush certainly had a massive musical element, and as did Noel, going on to do luxury comedy, working with Serge. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, from um, Thingy, what do you call it? <laughs> yes, 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 of course. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so, and I think, you know, the, the, the Bush, you know, there's a, there's a, you can trace a direct line from the Bonzos through the Bush. Mm. So Neil, and Neil, I used to go and see Neil in the 80s quite regularly. He used to, he used to tour quite a bit, uh, solo, around about the time the Innis Book of Records was on BBC Two. I used to go and see Neil live all the time, and then I ended up working with him, I ended up in the Bonzos, I ended up in a band with him, the Idiot Bastard Band. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's kind of fresh in my mind at the minute for obvious mm. bloody reasons, but mm. I think I would come back to the Bonzos and Neil's work again and again. Because it was, you know, it did so many different things, melodically, lyrically complex. If you listened, I'm, uh, the closest, I'm not joking, one of the closest lyricists 
and in terms of sort of storytelling and wit is Neil. And I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but I think Neil Hannon and Neil Innes have a lot in common, you know. Mm. And I always, you know, um, even though there's a kind of a grandeur to the Divine Comedy, when they err towards absurdity, I'm reminded of the Bonzos. And I know that, that Neil Hannon was a fan of theirs as well, so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's been a real outpouring on even across social media since yeah. since Neil passed away. Yeah, well, um, Mark Hamill. Do you see, Mark Hamill was absolutely broken when he went. You know, it's yeah, it's odd because Aid Edmondson phoned me up. You know, and we were just sort of consoling each other on the phone. You know, um, it's just a, it's just I still haven't got to grips with it really. But anyway, you know. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I suppose it's one of those things. Do you know what I mean? There's we're kind of losing we're losing really really important people and obviously we've lost a lot of great music uh people over the years and you kind of wonder what they would be doing you know the, like the likes of john lennon and stuff now mm, what, yeah, they, what they yeah. would be doing well it's that's as, the as thing output. isn't it is is that there's that odd sense that you know when people are you know go before their time before they're due and well, when someone like in the case of Neil goes and they were still Neil, I know he was working on a book. I know he was um, crowdfunding another album, you know, at the moment as well. And, it, and it's just all these, these, these. Uh, he was a, he um, certainly wasn't a workaholic, but you know, he had a, a good work ethic that he always adhered to, and so he was always making something. But he didn't feel a, you know, he wasn't driven. But, mm. um, that's it, you know. That, that's the thing about creatives is 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 kind of extrapolating where they've been. I always like to imagine where Hendrix would be if mm. he'd lived, if he'd lived, you know. But the, I suppose that's there's there's that thing, isn't there? That the, you know, a legacy can't be tarnished if someone's yeah. not around to tarnish it. So you know, well, exactly, <laughs> no. exactly. I mean, and you've got like you know the likes of Monty Python. Obviously, they're yeah. still they're all they're all kind of doing their own things now. Yeah, yeah and very much so. Yeah, yeah Michael Palin is. Travelling, yeah, <laughs> travelling yeah, the yeah. globe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, would you say, like music, uh, you know, like growing up and stuff, it's kind of it's it's shaped you as a person. Um, it certainly was um, what I spent most of my time and money on uh, when I did get a job was going to gigs and things. Uh, I used to get, I used to follow a band around uh, who were called the Members. I used to go, I saw them sort of about twenty times. Uh, as a kid, uh, so they're certainly the band I saw the most. I absolutely love their stuff. They kind of came out of the pop punk thing and then transitioned into dance music. We mm. saw what the Clash did as well, and so I developed this appreciation for funk via via um, being a fan of theirs. So I like the fact that when music was an education, so the members, you know, got me into reggae uh, in a, a great degree, which then was kind of that interest was broadened out by two-tone and then you just find yourself going back the more authentic the sound is the more you find yourself going back and then i started buying a lot of 1950s and 60s jamaican scar and stuff and that you know i, lo I love the fact when music instructs you in a certain direction i love calypso mm -hmm. i think calypso is an extraordinary musical form and particularly when you 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 look at the fact that that it uh lyrically it was about kind of taking the piss out of each other as well there's a really brilliant calypso song it's is it is it the, is it the lord invader is it lord invader and the mighty sparrow i can't remember but it's called pekong jewel and it's just them slagging each other off at a gig but musically 
and yeah. it's so funny to listen to. Just talking about just being rude about each other's, you know, it's like <laughs> you, you look like a donkey. You've got an ugly wife. I don't, it's just, I, I, I just find it hysterical. And also, what I liked about Calypso, particularly with that that generation of um, you know Jamaican immigrants, the Windrush generation that came over, you know. Calypso was a response to being in a completely new culture. There was, if you look at, you know, um, Lord Invader's songs about, you know, talking about moaning about English landladies <laughs> and and um, uh, uh, what are the Teddy Boys up to? They need a, they need, they need to be, they need the Cat of Nine for the Teddy Boys. <laughs> the idea of beating the Teddy Boys because they're being culturally irresponsible. You know the fact that. That you know, um, when immigrants come to a new country and they want to be part of it, they have quite a kind of sort of conservative outlook and think this place is is going to become something to them. And the Calypso was such a great reflection of of the emotional kind of transition that these people were going through coming into the UK. And so I love Calypso, you know. And I, and that's the thing is through being a broadcaster through working on Six Music, I became exposed to an incredible range of different music, and I felt beholden to kind of. Uh, to uh, to to sort of take the audience with me on a, on an expansive musical journey, but I think that the management at Six Music just wanted someone to be wacky in the morning. <laughs> I mean, is there anything you're listening to at the moment, sort of that's on the scene? I very sadly, I've kind of um, with the. I think that as you get older, you you have to, in a way, sort of pick your battles, as mm. it were, and and certainly in terms of. I've got only got so much room in my head for new experience, and I'm studying art at the moment, so music's way at the back of the queue. I do. I tend to listen to Keris Matthews at the weekend, and I listen to um, uh, uh and uh, Radcliffe as well at the weekend, uh, whenever possible. Mark Riley, Lauren Lauren Laverne's always on, but you know, uh, for the breakfast show. Um, so, yeah, generally Six Music has got such a broad span of stuff that they play. When mm. I hear stuff there, I tend to do Shazamming. Yeah. I'll Shazam. I'll hold my phone up to the radio and go, oh, I must buy that, and then completely forget to buy it. <laughs> so, you know, there we are. So, I saw you recently doing the, uh, over Christmas, they showed the programme with you and uh, Marcus Brigstock going uh, through Bolivia. Oh, yeah. I mean, what yeah. what was that like? That must have been, like, even uh, even the bit where you were kind of, like you're struggling to breathe, even with the yeah, yeah. The no, I, I passed out uh, oh with God. altitude sickness. Yeah, um, no, it was it was good fun. It was a it's a good trip to do. And yeah, I only agreed to do it because Brig was on it. So, and it's like if you if you ever see me on one of those shows, celebrities do this, celebrities <laughs> do that. Look who I'm on with, and it's that's why I've done the trip. That's why I did Celebrity Antiques the other month. It's because John Cooper Clark was on with me. <laughs> And so just me and John Cooper Clark buying antiques. I just thought, well, I'm never going to get an opportunity to do that in my life. And the same with Brigstock. Who, and me and Marcus had the best time in Bolivia. And that was a, an absolute joy to do, that, uh, that whole show. Yeah. yeah, I mean, interacting with the locals and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, I, do remember, the, I do remember eating. one point. We were, we, were in, uh, we were at a llama farm on the Alta Plena in Bolivia. And uh, this llama farmer and his family were playing us this uh, very kind of ancient Bolivian uh, religious song about how we hope that our llamas are fertile and make many more llamas. And then I played them (laughs) 
Eddie Don't Like Furniture by John Hegley. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I've, I have played a John Hegley song on the Altaplina in Bolivia <laughs> on a ukulele, so, yeah. <laughs> so you, did, you, did you, have, you didn't have a guitar with you? I took Just, a ukulele. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is before ukuleles became the um, least acceptable instrument in the world. This is just before the we we are sick of hipsters with ukuleles <laughs> movement really got cracking. So this was this was some six years ago now. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, comedy heroes. I mean, like myself, you might, we're kind of of a, of a certain generation. Yeah. Uh, who would be your comedy heroes from you know that you would have looked up to and, and still look up to now? Yeah, I think Steve Martin was the first was the first time I saw that absurdity still had currency. And it was very strange to see an American doing the kind of wacky stuff that he was doing. Because Americans were either very kind of fought-the-floor stand-up comedians like your Jackie Masons um, and, uh, you know, your your New York stand-ups, you know, even the more... The guys on the scene like Seinfeld and that that came along sort of in the wake of Steve Martin. You know, regular stand-ups. Whereas Steve Martin... Just everything that he did, he had just had that odd sensibility to him. And I remember seeing him as... I was about 13 the first time I saw Steve Martin on telly. Um, and, yeah, that sort of stayed with me. That, that, that was the first time I saw that comedy wasn't someone with a bow tie in a dinner jacket talking about their mother-in-law. There was just more to it, you know. Yeah. That's what I liked. I mean, any of, any of the British uh, old-school... Comedians that you um, I like Max Miller. I like Jake Thackeray. So the musical comedy. I like. I like the Bonzos. You know, it's a musical comedy kind of stuck with me. Les Dawson, again, language playing with language. That's more like Les Dawson's more like poetry. If you mm. think about it, really, if you listen to those monologues that he did at the beginning of his radio shows, the precision of the words selected is absolutely unbeatable. You know. His, his choice of language is very, very deliberate. And I think he's just a much brighter man than, than you know, that whole, you know, the bow tie, the northern comic thing. He was a literary figure. He was a poet. He read, he read you know, he read Joyce. He, 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 he loved language and words. He was a great, great man. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Phil. It's been Cheers, an absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolutely lovely. Thank you very much. 